In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Manisha Takur is our guest this week on Money Tales. Early in her career, Manisha earned big year-end bonuses at work. This caused her to begin to equate her self-worth with her net worth. As Manisha looks back, she sees that her identity was wrapped up in her work, and bonuses were an indication of how well she was doing. She kept her head down, kept working hard, and tried to meet society's money expectations. Then, as Manisha was nearing age 50, she experienced the second of two near-death illnesses. She was on bed rest for months. Through this experience, Manisha came to see that regardless of all of her accomplishments, she never seemed to achieve enough. Manisha changed her mission and focus by deciding to step away from her work she was doing and pour into what matters most to her. Let me tell you more about Manisha. She's worked in financial services for over 30 years. Today, she's the founder and CEO of MoneyZen, working as an ardent financial literacy advocate for women. Manisha has written two personal finance books for women in their 20s and 30s. Her latest book is Money Zen, The Secret to Finding Your Enough. Here are three key money topics Manisha hits on in this conversation. First, the difference between money problems and money worries. Second, how access to credit and media images that don't resemble financial reality influence the spending decisions of many people. And third, how Manisha defines money zen as having calm confidence and clarity about both your relationship to money and the role you want it to play in your life. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now onto our conversation with Manisha Takor. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cami Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Cammie, I'm so excited about our guest today. She recently wrote a book called Money Zen that I've been reading. That's so good. The book is more around like making money in enough. And we'll get into that with Manisha soon. But it did cause me to think about spending money. And so I was thinking, well, what was one of the most expensive things that I ever bought? So get ready, Cammie, because I'm going to ask you this in a moment. <laughs> oh, no. But I think one of the most expensive things I bought from a relative perspective... So this is just relative to the money that I had to spend on things was back in 1998 when I was leaving New York City after having lived there for a couple of years and was just scraping by on my job. I had always wanted to buy something from Barney's. So I went into (laughs) Barney's, I was shopping. What did I end up with? A $500 pair of sunglasses. Oh man, that's an expensive pair of sunglasses. I wasn't making very much money. That was a huge amount of money back in 1998. 
And so I was so proud of myself. I walked away. They were the coolest, hippest sunglasses. But you know what? I couldn't keep those sunglasses because it felt so uncomfortable. I kept obsessing over the cost of the sunglasses and what that meant to my financial life. So I ended up returning them. And I figured my goal was to buy something at Barney's. Sandy, I have to jump in because my biggest splurge as well relative to where my income was at the time was also at Barney's. (laughs) I went and I bought two winter coats. One was kind of a very long, classic, businessy wool coat. And the other was this gorgeous, fun alpaca coat. And we can talk about this later about my philosophy on spending, but I'm happy to say, gosh, 18 years later, I still have both and I still use them. So my per year cost is much lower now. (laughs) Amortize those puppies down. Oh my gosh, Manich, I like that. thought about that with the sunglasses, but I couldn't get myself over the hurdle. (laughs) I mean, what about you? What's one of your more expensive purchases? I'll take us away from Barney's and say that as you were talking, I thought about my first car purchase, or it was really my second car purchase. And I was going from a Honda Accord, like the best buy ever. It drives itself. It never needs to go to to get service. It takes regular price gas. But I'd driven it into the ground and I needed a new car. And I'm not a big car person. They don't get me excited or anything. But I got upsold by my family. My family said that I needed something a little sturdier, safer for the driving that I did. I was commuting. I'd go to the mountains for fun. They upsold me. I ended up in a more expensive car than I was mentally prepared for. I could afford it, but I wasn't mentally prepared but I did it and I went for it. To me, I have the funniest memory when I took this new lovely car that I'm still driving. Gosh, I want to say 17 years later. That tells you my nature. First time I filled it up with gas. It's a bigger tank than my Honda Accord and it took premium. And I couldn't believe the dollars that just kept flowing into this gas tank. And Sandy, if I could have returned it, I might have returned it but it's been a great car for 17 years. <laughs> See, you two have amortized that cost down. This is a great question, a great way to start. Let's welcome our guest today, Manisha Takar. It is fantastic to be talking with you on the Money Tales podcast. Amy and Sandy, thank you so much for having me on. Please introduce yourself. Share two to three pivotal moments in your life that have really influenced you. I am a 30-year veteran, I can't believe this, of the financial services industry. And I always say, when somebody wants to talk to you about your money, you want to know what their credentials are. So briefly, I have an MBA from Harvard. I'm a CFA. I'm a CFP. Spent the first 15 years of my career working on the institutional side of the business as a buy-side equity analyst and portfolio manager. And I spent the last 15 years working on the individual side in wealth management. In terms of pivotal moments, the first one was when I was about 11 years old and my dad in a very unique father-daughter bonding moment pulled out his HP 12C calculator and showed (laughs) me how to calculate how much money I'd have at age 65 if I saved my babysitting and lawn mowing money and it grew at various different rates of return. Wow. Yeah, seriously. That's how I got hooked on investing in the beginning. A second pivotal experience comes from my mom, who 
always tells me money gives women voices and choices. I've never forgotten that as I've gone through life. Say that again. I'm trying to process it. Money gives women voices and choices. Voices and choices. Thank you. Well said. I, like everyone, hit some speed bumps in life where I face planted. They were of that magnitude. And the financial house did give me choices, which I was profoundly grateful for. And then I think the final pivotal moment was when I quit my first job right out of business school. I was in an investment banking program, which back in the 90s was hellish. You worked 100 hours a week, but you didn't actually get your work till 6 p.m. when the managing director threw PowerPoints on your desk and you worked through the night. I quit after six months after the firm had invested all this money in training me, and I thought they were going to hit me on the head. And instead, the managing director of the office said to me, Manisha, this is wonderful. Get out before your family gets so used to this money that you're stuck in this job. And two other senior people also reiterated that same message in slightly different words before I left. And back then, it was before the tech bubble. So investment banking was a classic way to make big dollars if you made it all the way to the top of the ladder. And so those three things have always stuck with me. Going back to as you were a younger kid, you worked in the gig economy, whether it was babysitting or doing other things. But your parents also were talking with you about money. Tell us, what was the time in your life when you really started realizing money had this power and could do this stuff versus just hearing the words and the HP12C calculation? When did it really come to life for you? And what was that feeling? I think there were two sets. One was when I graduated from college, my dad showed me how to set up a very simple budget. Back then it was pre-internet. And so this was on Excel and Actually, I started the first ones on a piece of paper. It was pre-Excel and then moved it to Excel. And the feeling of knowing where my money was going and the amount of calm that brought me and clarity is one of the first memories that I have. And then the second one was when I graduated from school and realized that I did not have any student loan debts and most of my friends did. And what an incredible gift that was for my parents and what an incredible start on life I would have. And concurrent with that was a guttural, I want to say fear almost of debt, seeing how my colleagues struggled with their student loan debt. Manisha, what's really interesting about your responses to that question was the amount of feeling that you were bringing up. These moments of meaning had feelings for you. And I'm curious, are you a feeler naturally or was there something about money that was invoking this feeling for you? I have an odd mix. If you look at Myers-Briggs between thinking and feeling, I'm kind of right in that middle point. I would argue that for me, money ends up being more of a feeling, especially worries about money. 
And most of my feelings about money have tended to be on the worry side, on the never enough side. But having worked in finance for so long, I also have a very thinking side towards money, which often contradicts what I'm worried about and tells me you shouldn't be worried about, but I still am. How do you reconcile those two differences? We see it in the work that we do with clients all the time. And we'll often talk about it as two sides of money, the technical side and the emotional side. And while we talk about them as being two different sides, they're really like one integrated thing. (laughs) They are. I mean, I call them money problems and money worries. And money problems have tactical solutions to them. And money worries have emotional solutions to them. And the way I dealt with it was hitting a wall at age 50 and realizing that I needed to do something fairly dramatic. So I decided to take two years and research how, in my case, I ended up developing a really toxic relationship between the thinking and the feeling sense that I had around money, specifically that I had come to live my life to optimize the equation, self-worth equals net worth. This is so good. And I want to get to where you are today, but I want to reel back to this time when you're working in on the institutional side in money. Not only are you focused on researching the analytics, quite often it becomes a draw to represent your self-worth through your net worth. How did that manifest itself in you? Was that something that it sounds like from your background wasn't necessarily what would be who you are, but it's pretty contagious. This is one of the most fascinating things I discovered when I tried to figure out how did I end up with this horrible mindset? I grew up in a small town in Indiana. I didn't grow up in a fancy environment and I wasn't encouraged to be in a fancy environment. And what I realized was from fourth grade to sixth grade, I was bullied a lot. I was mixed race in a small American town. I was chubby and the kids called me thunder thighs and cow bud. And I talk about it more in the book. But the way I dealt with being ostracized at that young age was to throw myself into academics because I would get praise from my teachers and I could measure it by grades. So as I moved into the workforce, it became promotions and my income stream. And it wasn't a conscious thought. It was more that a behavior that helped protect me as a youngster carried on and became a runaway, unhealthy trait without my even realizing that that was what I was doing. So it's just snowballing throughout your adult life. And what's interesting to me is the story that you shared a little while ago about leaving that first job in investment banking, people encouraging you to leave because it's harder as the money starts coming in at bigger amounts. So it's almost ironic. I feel like I was warned and then I ignored the warning. It was like I was told, don't eat junk food. It's not good for you. And I went ahead and had the Pop-Tart. Because it tastes great and it's addictive. And then you want more Pop-Tarts. Manisha, to what extent, if any, do you think that the societal messages around money played into 
your own relationship of that self-worth equaling your net worth? Societal issues are gigantic. When I think about societal issues, I think about the way in which we have come to identify ourselves with things, possessions, our sunglasses, our coats, our cars, but also where we go on vacation, how we dine. We've always, as humans, compared ourselves to each other. The problem now is that it's on steroids for two reasons. One, we have easier access to credit than at any point in human history. And so it's very easy to spend beyond your means. And in fact, we're encouraged to do so. And on top of that, we now live in a world where many of the media images we see bear no resemblance to financial reality. Most of us know when it comes to social media, we see stuff on Instagram that's carefully posed and whatnot. But what I'm talking about are the more insidious images, what we see on TV shows and in movies. And we will see an actor who has a job. Maybe they're a paralegal. Maybe they're a police officer. Maybe they're a physician's assistant. And yet you look at the clothes they wear, the car they drive, the home they live in, the way they groom. And I've done this on several different types of characters. And when I've added all of that up and then looked at the average income for those professions, you'd have to earn 30 to 50% more to live like that. And so we're comparing ourselves to unrealistic images in media And we're comparing ourselves to the Joneses next door, who likely are also funding their lives on death. That's right. The vicious cycle. It is a vicious cycle. It really is. Manisha, your book, Money's End, The Secret to Finding You're Enough, is amazing. You're super open and vulnerable, and you're talking about money. I'm curious, as you were in your 30s and coming through your profession, Who were you talking with about money and what were those conversations like? I was talking to clients about money. I lived in this ecosystem where the language of the product that I was creating, portfolios for corporations, endowments, foundations, was based on money. And the pleasure that the clients felt or the disappointment that they felt was based on how much money I made for them or didn't make from them. So while it wasn't a personal daily obsession, that was permeating my brain through that entire section of my life. On the personal side, what happened is in finance on the institutional sides, very often you have a base salary, but you're big money comes at the end of the year with your bonus. And so I started to really associate my worth both at my skill at my job, but also as a human, because so often our jobs become who we are with the size of my bonus. And while you don't share those numbers in that kind of context with your colleagues, When I would go home at the holidays, man, I'd get out of the car or out of the airport and get into the car with my parents. And like the first thing I'd start talking about is how big my bonus was. And my parents were like, 
okay, how are you? And I'm like, I'm telling you how I am. This is how big my bonus is. <laughs> and so that's how the discussion played itself out in my 30s and my 40s. Were you really thinking about your parents' responses to you? And were you aware of that disconnect? They're asking about you. You're telling them about how much money you're earning. I didn't see it at all, Sandy. In my mind, I'm thinking, why aren't you jumping up and down and whooping at what I'm telling you? And why are you asking me these other stupid questions? Got it. And I'm curious, did you ever go back to your high school reunions? Did you ever go back as a successful professional to that community where there were kids when you were younger who were making fun of you? It's interesting. In my days when I was stuck in that self-worth equals net worth, I used to have this daydream of flying into my reunion in a helicopter and landing right in the middle, kind of James Bondish. But no, actually, I left Indiana when I was 18. And of all the states that I've traveled in extensively for work, I've never been back to Indiana. I think that's intentional. Yeah, for sure. You just cut it off. That's so fascinating. But in your fantasy life, you'd still go back there because if you're equating your self-worth with your net worth, it seems like a logical jump to want to be able to go and show off your material success. I think today I probably would like to go back if I had a reason, but it's from a place of financial health and emotional wealth that I would want to go back. I'd be very happy because I'm just like, Cammie, my Mini Cooper is 12 years old and it's sturdy as can be, takes regular gas. And I'd be (laughs) delighted to drive to Indiana in that because I feel like I've escaped after this journey of writing the book and all that I learned on a multidisciplinary standpoint. And I would return a very different person. Manisha, will you share with us a little bit about that journey of writing your book and really somehow pumping the brakes on the momentum that was taking place in your life and having that awareness to do that? I mean, I wish it had been this really mature moment where I came to realize that my values were all screwed up, but it wasn't. I had the second of two literally near-death life illnesses, and I was on bed rest for months, and I was just about to turn 50. And I sat there thinking, oh my God, I have spent my entire adult life trapped on this hamster wheel of hustle culture. And no matter how much I earned, no matter how much praise I received, no matter how many accomplishments I achieved, it was just never enough. And the reason it was never enough is that I felt I was never enough. I kept trying to fill that void in me with more, because that's what society tells us. Whatever ails us, the answer is do more, earn more, be more. When I was on bed rest, I was having some severe autoimmune issues. My body was quite literally attacking myself. I think it was because it was the only way to slow me down. I couldn't do more for the first time. And that's what got me questioning, how did I end up in this place? 
Tell us about what it was like to begin to question that and take time away from work to focus on that. When I was ill in the beginning, I just felt profoundly guilty that I was letting my colleagues down, that I wasn't there for them. We had just launched a couple of big new projects and I disappeared and I was integral to moving them forward. And then it got to the point where I was only able to stay awake about five hours a day. So I had to let go of the guilt because I just had no energy. And so what happened then was just a feeling of profound sadness that, you know, they say on your deathbed, you don't think, I wish I had worked more. And it's such a cliche, but the illness that I had prior to that was dengue fever. I was on the back of my ex-husband's off-road motorcycle. We went through the jungle and I got bit by an infected mosquito. And dengue fever usually isn't the end of the world. It's like malaria. But a small percentage of people develop severe complications that can lead to organ failure. And I happened to be one of them. And so there was a point where I was in the hospital and it was so bad that my parents and my brother were called in from the East Coast. And I really thought, this is it. I mean, it was amazing. That's all I thought about was family. Now, that was the first time. And about 10 days later, I'm still in the hospital, calling my assistant, having her come over so we can come up with a game plan for how I can start working again. So that one was in my early 40s. Didn't wake me up. I needed a second smack in the face from the universe. (laughs) Manisha, now that you've reframed your relationship with money and you've found this Zen, tell us what it's like for you today, your relationship with money. Let me define money Zen to put this in context for listeners. I define money Zen as having calm confidence and clarity about both your relationship to money and the role you want it to play in your life. And I believe people arrive at their own ecosystem of money zen by living to optimize their life according to a much healthier formula, which is financial health plus emotional wealth. There's a study that We all, given our age and how long we've been in the industry, have heard, listeners may not have. And that is this number that $75,000 is what you need in order to be happy. And anything beyond that doesn't. Yeah, so easy. You're in Nirvana. And so many people roll their eyes. If you live on the East Coast or the West Coast and you've got a family, you're thinking, are you kidding? Well, the authors this past year came back and did some research. It was a Princeton Penn collaboration, and they discovered, yeah, that study is wrong, but not for the reason most of us think. It's not because the number was too low. And again, we'd have to inflation adjust that number to know what it means today. But because there is a number for each of us, it's not uniform, it's different. But there is a number at which we have, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of the needs, We have the financial health to comfortably deal 
without feeling like we're in deprivation with our core financial needs. And any money above that does not increase our life satisfaction if that financial health isn't concurrent with an underlying sense of overall well-being. And that's what was wrong with me. I had financial health, but I was emotionally bankrupt. So this has been very interesting. I have kept track of my money probably within $100. I could tell you exactly how much I spent every year from 1992 when I graduated from college up until age 50 when I started on this adventure. I stopped tracking my money at that level of granularity. And I actually started to spend money in a joy-based manner. And by that, I mean, I made several purchases that on the surface will seem extravagant. I bought a 1915 cabin on a lake in rural Maine that's five feet from the water. And the reason I did that is it also happens to be two miles away from a summer place my brother has. And so I can see my two little nephews and niece who are still at the age where they will talk to adults. And recently, I decided that I'm going to leave Portland, Oregon, even though the real estate market is terrible and nobody wants to buy anything with 8% interest rates, except me, who went and bought a place in Washington, D.C., where my brother and the kiddos live. And I live three miles away from them. And I'm a one-hour flight from my parents. And I decided to prioritize family and in a way that would be comfortable and enjoyable to me. At the same time, I've also developed a deep fondness for wearing Carhartt overalls and flannel shirts. (laughs) So I don't wear the fancy armor anymore most of the time. My spending has shifted. I've given myself liberation to spend more of it, but only where it brings me deep joy. And I've been more cognizant of the things that I've spent money on in the past, fancy pants, clothes, and accessories, they really didn't bring me much joy. I have such pride hearing this story from you and hearing you on the other side of this. And it makes me wonder if you've developed a meter, a scale for measuring your joy. I think about it in terms of contentment. I like the word joy because I use it in the context of budgeting. Nobody likes to budget. So I like to call discussions about budgeting joy-based spending. And I devote a section of the book to this. But in reality, joy and happiness can feel like there's some kind of gold medal we're supposed to go after. Once we get it, we have it forever. And so I think about it much more in terms of contentment. And when I wake up in the morning, do I feel excited about any part of the day that is ahead for me? And if I don't, if I'm in a place where something doesn't feel good to me, I now ask myself something that I learned from one of the experts that I interviewed, which is to whom or what do I need to connect 
in this moment or in this day in order to move closer to contentment. So if I have a day that is packed full of a bunch of things that I don't really feel like doing, could be personal, could be professional, I ask myself that question. And it's amazing how it can bring in contentment, even if the answer is just something really small. And so whatever that thing is for you, that's how I have implemented it in my life now. Manish, I'm glad you shared that because having some sort of way of a mechanism to measure it feels like it could derail you again, or not just you, any, anybody. It's another metric we're chasing after. You really described as something in your heart. I'd love to ask on the equation that you shared with us before, self-worth equals net worth. What is now, instead of net worth, self-worth equals what? Connection, creativity, and simplicity. What's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? My next money conversation is going to be with myself. I am in the very lucky position to have these two new properties near my family, which will be the first time since I was 18 that I've lived this close to family. Both of them need a little bit of renovating. And so I'm going to have to talk to myself long and hard about what pieces I do want to renovate, what pieces I don't need to do, and how I want to allocate those funds in a joy-based, practical manner. Sounds like a good conversation. Manisha, where's the best place for our listeners to find you? Because I like simplicity. Everything about me, my book, my socials, all lives at moneyzen.com. Thank you, Manisha, for sharing your story with us. And your book is excellent. I very much enjoyed it. Money's in The Secret to Finding You're Enough. Thanks for sharing. It's so personal. What you do in the book is exactly, it's who you are. It's what you brought to the Money Tales podcast. So thank you. Thanks so much, Cami and Sandy, for having me on. This was a delightful conversation. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.